Put your hands together. Amen. From, from the streets of Durham, from the prisons of Durham County, from the nation of Islam, to the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ and a new creation through the blood and the power of His resurrection. Um, I want you, if you would, at all of our different campuses, would you stand to your feet right now? I want us to pray together for Edward. We're going to pray together for Edward. Father, thank you for, God, such a real reminder that you seek and save the lost. God, we see ourselves, I see myself in Edward's story. The situation was different, yes, but God, from a point of brokenness and idolatry and self-centeredness to being brought to my knees to confess that Jesus, you were the Christ born of a virgin who bore my sin and carried my shame so that I could know you. God, we rejoice. And God, without apology, I ask you to make this church great for the sake of people like Edward. God, that we might have greater opportunities to take the gospel into places of brokenness like prisons, places of need, God, broken marriages, broken families, some of our own broken marriages and families. God, we pray that you might enable us to preach the gospel like we never have, with greater clarity than we ever have. Give us a new day of harvest. We give you thanks, we worship you, we stand in grateful awe. We pray confidently in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. 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 At the Briar Creek campus, before you sit down, if you would be so kind as to look this way, everybody look kind of toward me, um, except on that side, look toward the middle. And uh, if there is a seat in the middle there, if you would be so kind as to move in um, so that we could leave aisle seats that are open, I think there are still a number of people. Um, I know that you are Americans and you like to have like seven seats beside you, but this is not an airplane, okay? Uh, so if you could scoot in so that we have every seat taken up and we help those in the lobby, and then when you have done that satisfactorily, you may sit down, you may be seated. Let me uh, use Edward's story to tell you that um, to this Tuesday night we have something that is very important, uh, and that is a, uh, it is our, a local outreach forum that is kind of a one-stop shop in helping you get connected to the ministries that we have um, serving our city. Uh, there are five areas of particular need that we have identified in our city that we, we have very strategic outreaches to, the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, and then the high school dropout and at-risk, uh, at-risk kid. These are not the only areas that we, we minister in our city, but those are five that we really kind of focus on. And so on Tuesday night, it's going to be a little bit of the why and how that you get involved. There'll be breakout sessions on how to get involved in each of those five areas. Uh, and so I would encourage you to come if you are not connected. If you are a part of a small group um, that does not have a, a place of connection for your small group, we encourage slash require every one of our small groups to be involved in some ministry to the city. And so uh, if your small group is way behind, then you should email your small group after a uh, small group leader this afternoon and say, I'm going to go redeem the reputation of our small group by being our representative and finding out what it is that we could do. Um, I would it's just going to be great. All the information is in your worship guide, uh, so I encourage you um, that you would be out uh, there, and I hope we'll see you on Tuesday evening. All right? 
Uh, if you have your Bible, I would love for you to take it out and open it to the book of First John. The book of First John, we started last week, and we are going to continue um, looking at this letter that John the Apostle wrote. If you are new to your Bible, I told you last week that the book of First John is toward the latter part of your New Testament, which means if you find the book of Revelation, you should go back to the left a little bit. Um, if you find yourself somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean in some Middle Eastern maps, you're too far to the right. Uh, so go back toward the left. Um, the book of First John, the book of First John is all about how you can know that the gospel that you believe is true and how you can know that your experience with God is genuine. As I, I mentioned, the, the, the epistle of 1 John was written by John, who was one of the closest disciples to Jesus personally. And here is the question that he refers, he returns to over and over and over again in this letter is, how can you know that your experience with God is genuine? Now, it's interesting to me that most of the letters in the New Testament identify a specific target audience. Um, to the churches in Galatia, Galatians, to the churches in Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, to Timothy, to Titus. John is one of the only letters that does not identify a target audience because this is something that everybody deals with. How do you know that your experience with God is real? How do you know you're not just swept up in some kind of crowd deception? How do you know that you're actually part of the movement? Most people that I know have dealt with this, and if you've never asked the question, you probably, you probably should. I told you last week that, that, that to that end, I have my own book coming out called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, um, How to Know for Sure That You Are Saved, that deals with these same questions. Uh, and I wrote that simply because of how many times I dealt with it in my life and how many people I've talked to at our church who dealt with that question. People say, well, I'm not sure if I got the ceremony right. I'm not sure if I, you know, that, that, that I'm actually saved. I, you know, since I, I, I prayed to receive Jesus, I've really, man, I've had some times where I struggled in sin and, and times where I doubted God. And I'm not sure if I'm actually, uh, I'm actually a Christian. Um, that's why I, I wrote that book because I, I dealt with that and I know how many of, of, of you have dealt with that too. The book actually has not been released yet, but we do um, have advanced copies that are available for you if you are interested. Um, I also, I, I want to explain to you, and, and this is important for me, for you to know this, um, none of the books that I said we sell here at the church, um, I make any money off of because that's, I didn't write the, the book. I don't do these things to make money off of you. God called me to serve you, not make money off of you. And so um, all the money for, for the sell of these goes right back into the church. Uh, so now if you buy it on Amazon, all bets are off, okay? Uh, but, 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 but nothing that we do here is, is designed to do that. It's, it's, it honestly is something that I, I wrote because I knew that there were so many of us that, that dealt with that same thing. Um, the book of John, First John. First John, he's got about five points John has about five points he makes in answer to the question, how you can know for certain that you know God. Uh, but here's the thing. Um, he, he weaves them in and out in no particular order, and they're just all kind of jumbled together. If the Apostle Paul had written this book, it would be like point one, subpoint, 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 point two, subpoint, 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 and et cetera. Um, John's like point one, point three, a little bit of point two, point four, back to point one. Now let's pick up point two. Let's take point five. Let's go back to point one, point three, which honestly makes... First John a little difficult to teach because if you've been reading it, you're like he makes all five points about every seven verses. Um, so what we're we're gonna do over the next four or five weeks is we're gonna kind of go through the book of First John probably four times and we're gonna pick up themes and we're gonna kind of trace them through the book of First John. Well, the theme that we are going to to chase this morning is this one. It is how you can be certain about your experience with God through an experience of fellowship with Him. 
How you can be certain that what you believe is true through an experience of fellowship with him. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. If you've got a Bible, 1 John chapter 1, let's look in verse 1. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, John says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, let's stop there for a minute and think about what John is actually trying to say here. John is saying that the reason that he was so sure about what he was teaching is that he and the other apostles actually saw Jesus. They observed his miracles. They felt his resurrected body. John is saying, this is not a theory to us. We didn't start believing this stuff because we thought Christianity, uh, it was a, we, we thought it was a superior way to live because it made the most sense to us. Because we, he, he, didn't, he says we didn't embrace it because, because it was our preference. We embraced it because a guy that we had known for three years was crucified on a cross, was put in a grave, and then walked out three days later alive. It is important to note that the apostles, listen, never attempt to draw their authority from the fact that Christianity is a superior explanation of the world. The apostles never, listen, think about this, they never attempt to draw their authority from the fact that Christianity is a superior explanation of the world. It very well may be a superior explanation of the world, but they draw their authority from the fact that Jesus was God come down from heaven and verified to them through his miraculous works. The proof of Christianity to them was not in how wise Jesus' teaching seemed to them. The proof to them was the fact that Jesus had miracles and a resurrection to back it up. Great example of this. Um, uh, in John's gospel, John records the story of a man who had been born blind, which to the Jews was a sign of God's judgment, um, uh, that, that Jesus healed. And so this guy's never been educated. He was blind. He never could go to school. Um, so the religious leaders uh, get this guy who's been healed, and they say to him, you can't go around saying that Jesus healed you because we theologians know that Jesus is a sinner and that Jesus teaches wrong things. And the guy's response is absolutely classic, John 9, 25. He's like, whether he is a sinner or not, I'm going to have to let you theologians and professional philosophers decide, but one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. By the way, that's from the JDV. That's, I, I kind of took a little liberty with that one, but that's essentially what he is saying. All right? he, he's saying, look, nothing wrong with academics, nothing wrong with academics, but you understand that the reason I believe in this guy is not because it all made sense to me and because I can prove everything is that I was blind and now I see. What John is saying is the reason that we are, are, are sure about what we believe, we, it's not because we can explain it all, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. We actually saw him. We touched him. We felt the wounds in his body after his resurrection. And in light of his resurrection, we decided to, 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 to doubt the doubts that we had and we decided to trust in Jesus. By the way, before I, I move on, John's statement here confronts one of the most commonly held cultural assumptions about religion. In our culture, the most commonly held assumption about religion is that it's personal preference, right? Hey, it works for you, doesn't work for me, this over here works for me, and it's, it's subjective preference, it's not objective 
truth. In fact, that's actually a quote from Immanuel Kant, who was the father of modern philosophy, if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, religions are not objectively true, they're subjectively helpful. Do you know the difference in objective and subjective truth? Maybe we ought to touch on that for a minute. A difference in su- subjective is preference, it's what's true for you. Objective is what's true regardless. Uh, if, for example, subjective. If I say, are you, are you hot? If I say, I'm hot, not meaning I'm good looking, but I mean, if I'm like, that would be objectively false. But uh, if I said, I, I feel hot, I feel hot. There are a bunch of you in here who would nod your head and be like, I feel hot too. Others of you in here, yeah, I can see you're bundling up, you're like, I feel cold. Now, it's not that I'm right and you're wrong, it's based on how either of us feel. My wife and I have this discussion just about every night before we go to bed. It's hot, it's cold. It's just, it's, it's true for both of us. That's subjective. But then there's objective truth, like um, what is the capital, if I said, what is the capital of New York, and you said, oh, clearly New York City, the most famous city in New York, it's, you know, the city's so nice, they named it twice, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's clearly got to be New York City, that just makes sense. And I'm like, well, you know, that's a good guess, but um, no, uh, it's actually Albany. And you're like, well, I don't know, I feel really passionately about it being New York City, because that works for me better, it's easier to remember. And then you turn around to your friends, you're like, let's all, we, we all, all of us back here in this section, we all feel like it should be New York City and majority rules, and so New York City is our capital of New York. I'll be like, well, you know, I appreciate that, but no, um, it doesn't matter how you feel or how many people agree with you, you're wrong because there's only one capital of New York and that's Albany. Um, People love to put Christianity in the subjective preference. It works for you. What John is saying is there was nothing subjective about the resurrection of Jesus. We didn't believe this because it made us feel warm and cozy on a winter night. We believe this because the guy who'd been dead got out of the grave and that's where our preferences stopped and his objective reality started. And so in light of his objective resurrection, we decided to doubt our doubts and to put trust in what he said. To doubt our doubt. We had all these reasons why Jesus could not be the Messiah, but in light of his resurrection, it seems smarter for us to doubt our doubts and trust in him. By the way, those of you that feel like you're skeptical people, here's my question for you. Are you skeptical enough of yourself to doubt your doubts? Are you skeptical enough to doubt your doubts? Because that's where faith begins, when you have a little, a little less confidence in your own ability to figure things out and say, I'm at least willing to doubt my doubts and to consider the evidence for Jesus. Now, some of you are listening to this. You're like, well, okay, good for John. He, you know, kudos to him. He got to see Jesus and touch him. What good does that do for me? I didn't get to see and touch Jesus. That's a great question. I am so glad you asked. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship means a shared experience. In Greek, it's the word koinonia. I'd always heard it when I was a kid that fellowship in English came from from the words fellow, like two fellows in a ship together. I'm pretty sure that is not true, um, but it's, it's a good image of two guys in a ship that are going through the same experiences on the sea. They're together. You're in the same boat. Um, what John is saying is, we wrote these things so that you would be in the same boat with us, so that you would have the same kind of experiences with Jesus that we had, experiential knowledge of God. But you say, well, how? Because we can't go observe Jesus's miracles. How are we going to see the things? He, how are we going to feel the things that he that he felt? Again, great question. The answer is in verse 2. The Jesus that John touched, watch this, and the miracles that John observed were a manifestation of the life of God, a life that you can share in. You see, the miracles that Jesus did were never an end to themselves. 
The miracles were always a pointer. They were called signs that pointed beyond themselves to some higher reality. That's what a sign does, right? It points outside of itself to something else. So Jesus' miracles were, Jesus did not prove he was the son of God by levitating. You know, you know kind of like, look at that. Uh, or, 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 you know, um, uh, 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 putting numbers behind you know, somebody's back and, and guessing what they were. Freezing himself on a block of ice for six months. He, he didn't do those things. Jesus' miracles always had a message, and they pointed beyond themselves to a reality that you were to participate in. Here's an example. John chapter 6. John records Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. But Jesus explains that the point of that miracle is not that he can do magic with loaves of bread. The point is that he is the bread of life, and all those who are spiritually starving can come and feast upon him, and they will find the deepest parts of their soul satisfied. Here's a question. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had the experience of having the love of God so overwhelm you that you realize that it is more glorious and more satisfying than any of the rest of the bread that the world can offer? You might not have seen Jesus feed the 5,000, but you've been like a starving man who crawled out of the desert and sat down to a seven-course meal. That's something you can feel and touch. John chapter 4, Jesus um, meets this shady woman who has all these secrets in her past, and Jesus reveals to her that he knows every single thing about her. He knows things that nobody else has ever known. He knows all her dark and dirty secrets, but he loves her anyway. Have you ever had that experience where God's Spirit basically reveals to you in your heart that God knows everything about you, but he loves you? He loves you even despite the fact that you are flawed and despite the fact that you are shameful, that his love presses in on you and you have this sense of love and acceptance that you have never known, that the heavenly father of the universe presses in on you and sweeps you up. Have you had that experience? Because that's what John 4 is pointing to. The book of, uh, book of Mark chapter 4, Jesus is in the, 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 the boat um, he's asleep with, and his disciples are on the, uh, you know, in the middle of the ocean, and the storm is raging. They think they're going to die, and he doesn't care. So they wake him up, like, don't you care that we're going to perish? And Jesus stands up, he wipes sleep out of his eyes, he looks around, he's like, hey, shut up to the storm, and the thing goes calm. Have you ever had that experience? I mean, maybe not, you know, exactly like that, but there was something going on in your life, and you prayed, and God stood up, and God calmed the storm, or maybe even better yet, God calmed the storm in your heart. And God showed you that even when the circumstances around you were out of control, he was in the boat with you, and his loving sovereignty was in control, and he brought a peace to your heart in the middle of a great storm. Has that ever happened? That's the life of God that these things are pointing to. Uh, one, one of my favorites, Mark chapter 8. Jesus, um, in one of the strangest miracles recorded that I still cannot totally figure out, because um, there's some details in here. I'm like, I have no idea why that happened. Um, Jesus meets a blind man. So how does he heal him? He hawkers on the ground. And you germaphobes are like, what in the world is he doing? He's like, I'm going to heal you. And he spits on the ground. That's not even the strange part. That's the part I can't figure out. Here's the strange part. He takes the mud made from his spit and he wipes it on the guy's eyes and says, now wash it off. Guy washes it off and Jesus says, can you see now? And the guy says, well, sort of. Everything's blurry and I see people walking around like they're trees. And so Jesus spits on the ground again, makes some more, wipes it on his eyes, washes it off and says, now can you see? And the guy's like, yeah, I can see 2020 now. Why did he do it that way? Were, were Jesus' batteries low the first time? Did he not, you know, did, did, did he misfire? Did it like, you know, glance off the guy's eyes and go and like heal a dog or something? It, what happened? Why did he do it? Because it was a sign. It was a sign of how God brings awakening to you. Have you ever had a similar experience where as God begins to come into your life, you start to see some things with greater clarity? 
But then as you walk with Jesus more, he brings even more clarity to your life until you begin to see clear spiritually that it's not always a, a one-stop process. Sometimes it's, you ever had that? What John is saying to you is all these miracles were things that pointed to an actual experience with God. And the question is, are you having those experiences? Koinonia is an experiential word. As you experience these things, you gain greater confirmation that this is all true. Christianity is a very much, is very much a taste and see religion. That sometimes the best evidence for it, the greatest assurance comes from how your, the life of God confirms that this is true. Now, let me, let me make sure I'm clear here. I'm not saying that the proof for Christianity rests on your experience. Because, I mean, I hear well-meaning Christians say this all the time. They'll say things like, well, you know, I can't, can't prove anything, but, you know, you can't argue with my experience. I know Jesus is real because he lives in my heart. You can't argue with my experience. I won't be like, yeah, we can argue with your experience. Lots of people have experiences that are like contradictory. You know, Mormons talk about knowing for sure that their way is right because they have a burning in their belly. I've had two or three of them tell me that over my life. I'm always like, well, I had a burning in my belly, but I took some antacid and it totally cleared it up. So maybe you should try that. But, um, but they're like, you know, I have, this, I have this kind of feeling that it's right. More uh, Muslims, man, they used to always tell me about this sense they had in their heart that Islam was just correct. So I'm not saying the proof for Christianity rests in your experience. What I'm saying is these experiences that you have validate what the Bible teaches because they give you a felt sense of the things that you're reading in the Bible as the word of life is made manifest to you. Christianity is an experience felt religion in which you interact with an actual God. The theme, this theme reappears in a different form in 1 John chapter 2. So flip over one chapter in your Bible, and let's go to 1 John 2, and let me show you how John talks about it here. 1 John 2, verse 20. 1 John 2, 20, here's what John says. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, let me be clear. This is not saying that I should not have a job, okay? You don't need a teacher, you know, fire your pastor. That's not what he's saying. Let's be very clear about that. What he is saying, it's a little confusing, but he is saying that the Holy Spirit gives you an innate sense of God in which the truth about Jesus just makes sense to you. That's the anointing he's talking about. You have this sense of God where you're like, well, yeah, that just makes sense. That's the voice of God. It is what John Calvin called a sensus divinitatis, or a sense of the divine. And it works like every single one of your other senses. If I walk up to you and touch you on your arm and say, how do you know that I touched you? It's not because you build a philosophical case for why I'm there and you're there. It's just that, well, I sensed it and I felt it. The way that you perceive the truth about God is God gives you a sense where you're like, well, yeah, that's the voice of God. Here's how John recorded Jesus saying it. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. People say to me sometimes, how do you know that God is real? How do you know that Jesus is true? I'm like, well, can't you hear his voice? Hey, I read the Bible, and I just have this sense. I'm like, that's it. That's the voice of my creator and my shepherd. That is a spiritual sense. Does that make sense? When the, the apostle Paul was converted, you know, it involved the light on the road to Damascus. You ever notice the details 
in that story, whenever you see random details in the Bible, you should always pay attention to them, especially ones that don't want to feel like they, 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 like they fit. Um, Paul's riding down the road, light shines, knocks everybody off their horse. Here's what it says. Everybody saw the light. Everybody heard a sound, but Paul heard the voice. Why did it go down that way? Because he's giving you a picture of what your conversion is like. You hear the voice of God. I don't mean actual words in your head, but you hear the voice of God. You say, that's God. That God, God, that's God is speaking in that. Other people hear the sound, but they don't discern the voice of God, which is why they can't understand why you're doing what you're doing. They could see the light, but they don't know it's the voice of God. Does that make sense? You see, he gives you an innate sense of God that works like every other sense. Now, uh, I know some of you are like, well, okay, wait a minute. Then how come, what about people who say they can't sense God? Well, see, the Apostle Paul, listen to this. The Apostle Paul says one of the things that happened as a result of the fall is that we lost our ability to sense God. That we are now spiritually blind. Our hearts are dull. Our ears are closed. So the voice is speaking, but we cannot hear it. So what God does when he awakens you is he gives you ears to hear a voice that has been speaking the whole time. God created you with the ability to know him, but sin clogged up those ears. And when God gives you ears to hear, that's a process we call regeneration. Regeneration just means making alive again. It means making new. God regenerates your ears so that you have ears to hear the voice of God and eyes to see what has been speaking the whole time. And by the way, just so we're clear, that's grace. That's not something you're smart enough or moral enough to figure out on your own. God gives it as an act of grace to you. People act like they're doing God a favor for believing in him. Newsflash, God does not need you to believe in him. God already believes in himself. He already knows he's real. He's not paid a compliment by the fact that you believe in him. It's an act of grace that God gives you the ability to see him. That's his grace to you. That's why, that's why the book of John Jesus would frequently say things like this, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not that the evidence is not weak enough, it's that we don't have hearts to perceive it. There is a sense that the Holy Spirit gives you that anointing that just gives you ears to hear what God has been saying so that you hear the voice of God as you read the Bible and you say, that's him. If you're taking notes, write this down. One of the signs that you really know God is you have fellowship, koinonia, with him through the Spirit. God begins to come alive to you. God begins to speak to you. It's not just doctrines that you're learning. It's not just, listen, a lifestyle that you're practicing. It is a God that you're fellowshipping with. God is speaking to you. Please note here that I'm not talking about, when I say that, God putting new information in your heart, like some of these goofy Christians who are always walking around telling you what God's saying to them about you. Have you, have you, have you been around church long enough to encounter these people? You don't have to be here more than like three weeks and you'll find one. Where they're like, yeah, God told, God told me that you're supposed to loan me $1,000, you know? Or how about this one, girls? Um, God, you know, a guy saying, God told me that we're supposed to get married. That still happens in our church. And I'm always like, why don't you ask God to help you grow a backbone so you can just ask her out on your own and not blame it on God? <laughs> right? I mean, God's not asking her out, you're asking her out. <laughs> you know, because now she feels like she can't say no to you because she's saying no to God. Right, so just own it. I want to go out with you, and I hope God's pleased with that. So when you go out, and if she, you say no, then I get. I guess He doesn't. Right? Or um, we got this happened. I kid you not. Uh, I'm probably going to e get an email about this, but I will say it anyway. Um, 
we got a letter a few weeks back because we got this big conference coming up, the advanced conference with all these kind of speakers from nationally known coming. We got a letter at our church office from a lady who told me in her letter that John Piper appeared to her in a dream and told her to tell me to let her speak at our conference. So I'm like, John Piper appeared to you? Is that like the ghost of Reformed theology past? Is he coming? Has he got a, has he got a message for me? I don't know what that is. Right, so we gave her like a 2 a.m. slot, I think, uh, at, our, at our conference. But I'm not talking about that. that. We're not talking about God giving you new information. What we're talking about is God making the old information come alive. That's what we're talking about. If you're taking notes, write this down. Koinonia, koinonia is the manifestation of the word of the gospel in your heart. Koinonia is the manifestation. Manifestation means magnification. The magnification or the coming alive of the word of the gospel in your heart. It's not the revelation of new words, but the magnification of the old ones. It's not sensing the spirit within. It's the spirit magnifying the word of life in your heart. Not, it's not just sensing the spirit within. In John's day, there was a movement called Gnosticism, which was really just an old version of the New Age movement, because there's nothing new about the New Age movement. It's as old as hell itself, because that's where it comes out of. It's, it's what Satan pulled on them in the Garden of Eden. He's like, hey, look within and find God. And John's like, I'm not talking about that, because that's not what the spirit does. The spirit doesn't reveal himself. He reveals the gospel, the words of life. The spirit, I've told you, is like the lights on the Washington Monument. Have you ever driven through D.C. on the interstate? You're like 10 miles away, and you can see the Washington Monument. And the reason is because millions of dollars of lights have gone into lighting that monument, but you never notice the lights, ever. All you notice is what they are illuminating. The Spirit of God doesn't illuminate himself. The Spirit of God illuminates the gospel so that the gospel comes alive in your heart. It is never things that contradict Scripture, by the way. It's certainly not new illumination that contradicts Scripture. I am still at this church blown away sometimes. By the way, you want to make my hair prematurely gray and drive me to an early grave? Say stuff to me like this. Well, God just gave me a piece about leaving my wife. I feel like God told me it was okay to leave my wife. I'm like, what? Yeah, I just, I know it. I just got this piece in my heart. You know what my response is always? Oh, yeah? Well, you know what? In the Garden of Eden, Satan gave them a piece about disobeying God and damning the human race. So my guess is that peace in your heart probably is not from God. It's probably from the same one that deceived them. Satan's goal is to give you peace in your heart about disobeying the word of God. So we're not talking about the spirit saying things to you that contradict his word. We're talking about the spirit taking the word of life and magnifying it so it comes alive in your heart. That's what we're talking about. A genuine experience with God, fellowship, koinonia, is the magnification of the word of the gospel in your heart. You begin to feel the word of life. The cross becomes larger. Your sin gets more bitter and more real. God's grace gets sweeter. The old words of life press in on your heart and they become, they become new to you. It's kind of like I've described before, like looking at one of those, like looking at one of those um, magic eye pictures. You know what I'm talking about? The little, it's like a big thing of dots and if you cross your eyes just right, um, you, know, you can see the three-dimensional image in it. How many of you, first time that you saw those things, totally faked it? Raise your hand. You're like, oh, yeah, I see it, you know, because <laughs> you stared at it for an hour and you couldn't see anything. You got two people looking at the same thing, right? And one of them just sees a morass of meaningless dots, and the other one, by looking at it the correct way, sees a three-dimensional image coming out of it. 
What he's talking about is not new doctrines that you learn, it's just that the old ones take on a very felt and experiential knowledge of them. Or the way that the Puritan Thomas Goodwin described it, he said it's like a man walking along holding his wife's hand when he suddenly turns and sweeps her up in his arms and he kisses her and he looks in her face and just says, you, I, you know how much I love you. Goodwin says they weren't any less married or any, he wasn't any less committed to her or less in love with her two minutes before, but her perception of it, her feeling of it got much more intense in that moment when he picks her up and says, I love you to her because what was true as fact became real in experience. That's what he is talking about. This, th- 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 this happens first when you are converted. This manifestation happens first at, at conversion. When suddenly, listen, the doctrines of the gospel suddenly come alive in your heart. And you realize that it's not a statement about what Jesus did in the past. It's a statement about what he did for you. And it becomes personal. Has that ever happened to you? John Wesley, who was the, you know, one of the guys behind the Great Awakening, who uh, was one of our country's greatest evangelists ever, talks about when he was converted. Um, he, uh, he, he, he was not, obviously not a Christian. A friend of invited him to church for an evening service that started at 9 o'clock in the evening. The preacher that evening, I guess, had not prepared his sermon, so the preacher was just reading the introduction to Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Now, talk about a recipe for a nap. Church at 9 o'clock where a pastor is reading the introduction from a 900, or excuse me, 300-year-old book. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's not, but John Wesley says, he says, in fact, let me just quote him. Uh, Wesley says, um, at about a quarter past nine, as the pastor read Luther describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart suddenly and strangely warmed. I saw in that moment that Christ had taken away my sins, even mine, and that he had saved me from the law of sin and death. It, it wouldn't, he didn't learn something new. It just came alive in him. By the way, you parents, this is what I'm looking for in my kids and what I cannot produce in my children. I can teach them the doctrines of the gospel, which I do, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will, at different points in their life, suddenly magnify them so they come alive and they give them eyes to see, which is why I pray for them every day and teach them every night. I can do the teaching, but the Holy Spirit has to give the illumination. It happens first at conversion, but watch this, it continues to happen again and again for the rest of your life. That's what koinonia is, is God's spirit magnifying over and over. There are times when God's love just presses in on you. Ephesians 3.18, I love how, one of my, I was going to say one of my favorites, but they're all my favorites. Um, Ephesians 3.18, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would grasp the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God for them. Here's why I love that. The word grasp in Greek, katalambano. Katalambano is a military term that means to seize or to overtake. So what he is praying is that the love of God would attack these people. They already knew about the love of God. I mean, it wasn't like they were learning. It wasn't like they were like, oh, God loves us. Write that down, you know. They, they already knew it. He's praying that it would seize their hearts and overtake it like a fortress so that every single part of their life would be saturated with the love of God and the love of God would be heavy to them. That's what he's praying for them. That's what fellowship is. Are you having these experiences? 
Because listen, if you're not, you have very serious reason to question whether or not you actually know God. Because God did not save you to stuff you full of a bunch of doctrine. He didn't save you because he needed robots to execute the principles of Christianity perfectly. You're not a computer database and you're not a robot. He created you to love you and to walk with you. The whole point is fellowship. Fellowship is the whole point of Christianity. And if you are not fellowshipping with him, if these are not experiences where the love of God is becoming real to you, then you're probably not actually a Christian. No matter how much doctrine you know or how much lifestyle you coerce yourself into following. By the way, let me one word of caution. Don't try to compare yourself, your experience to somebody else's. Because some of you are just more emotional than others. Um, I'm not saying that if you're a real Christian, your life is like the screenplay of Les Mis. You walk around bursting into song at all points, and you wake up in the morning strumming the harp beside your bed, you know, Chris Tomlin tunes. I'm not saying that. Some of you may be like that, and that's okay, but I'm not. I'm just saying that, that there is a dimension in which you are fellowshipping with God, in which you are walking with him, because that was the whole point. One last passage here, and then I'm going to try to make this really, really practical for you. Flip over to 1 John 5, 1 John 5, verse 14. Watch this one. This is the confidence, John says, we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. You see what he's saying there? How do you know that you know God? You see answers to prayer in your life. Because you get close to God and you start to know what God wants in different situations and you ask him and he gives you what you asked. Can you see the answers to prayer in your own life? Can you point me to a series of answered prayers as a confirmation that God is real and at work in your life? Because again, I don't know what it is for you, but for many people I know, Christianity is just a set of doctrines to be learned, a set of lifestyles to be adopted, but it's not a real God they interact with who actually answers prayer and is involved in their lives and in the circle of ministry that God has given them. By the way, we all have the experience of unanswered prayer. I'm not trying to tell you to obsess when a prayer doesn't get answered. That means you're not saved because I got a whole slew of unanswered prayers. But when God doesn't, at least doesn't answer the prayer the way that I think it should be answered. A lot of times what the Holy Spirit will do, this happened to me just the other day. I was really disappointed with God because it was something he didn't do that I thought that he should do. And the Holy Spirit pressed into my heart, Psalm 23, 1, I am your shepherd. And I know better than you. And so sometimes I overrule your requests because you're a sheep and you don't know what to ask for. And so instead of giving you what you asked for, I give you what you would have asked for if you knew what I knew because I'm your shepherd. And that's the experience that I'm having with the Holy Spirit. It's not always a direct answer prayer. It's just communion because I have a confidence in him because it's a real God that I'm actually interacting with. And I'm just telling you, if that's not your experience in Christianity, it might not be genuine. God did not save you as a computer database, and he did not save you as an automaton. He saved you as a person to walk with him. And the verification that this is real is you have actual experience with him. Now, I know what some of you are saying now. You're like, well, so how do we do this? How, how do we have these experiences? You just kind of sit around and wait to get zapped from heaven? I mean, is that what I do? Great question. You guys are totally on your game today with another great question. So let me, um, let me give you three things that you need to do. Three things. Here's your action steps, all right? Number one, number one, put yourself in the presence of his word. Put yourself in the presence of his word. 
I mean, that's how, that's how John shows you that God speaks to you, right? The way that God speaks to you is he magnifies the word in your life. I'm not telling you, you go sit around and look within and wait for this like kind of warm, strange, do not look within. There's nothing but a pit of poison there. All right, well, I just go out in the woods and I find God. You're not going to find God in the woods. <laughs> I mean, you, you can go in the woods and you can enjoy God's creation, but if you go to the woods, take your Bible with you because that's where God is going to come out of. God speaks through his word, not just solitude. If you're not a believer and you're like, man, I'd love to have an experience like John Wesley where I just knew, I would invite you to come back. Come back for the next several weeks and just put yourself in the presence of the word of God and see if something like that does not happen to you. Did you hear Edward's video? That's what he said happened to him. He's a Muslim. He gets in the presence of the word of God and just came alive and he says, I know that that's the voice of my creator. By the way, if you are a Christian and you're trying to convince somebody to become a Christian, same thing. Just get them in the presence of the word of God. You could do that by bringing them here you could do that. One of the things we provide for you at the church are, are, are ways that you can have somebody who's not a Christian start reading the Bible with you. We do this little thing that we call taste and see, which is a way of just getting somebody to read the Bible and you kind of checking in with them. Here's why. The greatest evangelistic tool that God gave us is his word. And so what we do is, it, I, I, here's how Martin Luther said it. This is great. Martin Luther said, if you're standing beside a cage with a roaring lion in it, and the person you're talking to does not believe the lion is real. You can do one of two things. You could stand there and defend the lion, or you could open the cage and let the lion defend himself. The word of God is like the lion. You can defend it, that's great, I'm glad you're doing that, but at some point, just let the lion out of the cage. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want somebody to have this manifestation of God's spirit, put him in the presence of God's word. If you're, a, if you're a believer and you want more of the manifestations of God's presence in your life, you know what you can do? <laughs> Put yourself in the presence of the word all the time. I give you several ways to do that in addition to just being a regular part of a place like this where you're hearing the word taught. Um, you write these down as A, B, C, D. A, do a quiet time every day. You know what a quiet time is? It's the worst named thing we've ever come up with in Christianity, by the way. A quiet time, like really, like it sounds like God puts you in a corner because he's mad at you and tells you to shut up. Um, no, that's not a quiet time. Uh, a quiet time is a daily time that you set aside just to meet with God through his word. I do it every single day. The first person I talk to every day is God because I go in my office and I open my Bible and I just meet with and hear from God. You say, well, how do you do a quiet time? If you're just starting, here's what I'll tell you. 30 minutes, that's 1 48th of your day, 30 minutes, divided into three sections of 10. First 10 minutes, just read the Bible. Second 10 minutes, pray, talk to God about what's going on in your life. And by the way, make a list of what you're going to talk to God and pray through that list. Don't just like, oh God, because you will do what I do. If I just start praying without a list, I'm telling you, I start praying and 35 minutes later, I'm thinking about the spaghetti we had the night before. Uh, my mind just wanders all over the place. So get you a list and pray and ask God to do certain things. Last 10 minutes, read a devotional or some kind of Christian book. 30 minutes. You do that every day, and I promise you it'll change your life. You ought to start it today. All right? Um, second thing, I told you quiet time. Uh, memorize scripture. 
I'm 39 years old. I've been in the ministry for 11 years. I still weekly memorize scripture. You want to know why? Because I want scripture flowing in my veins so that when life cuts me, I just bleed out God's word. It's why we do this Awana program here at our church on Sunday night for kids, where um, basically we dress up kids in these little paramilitary uniforms, and we stuff Bible down their throats. Um, People are like, well, they're, they're learning for the wrong reason. They're just learning so they can get the gold star or candy. I'm like, yep, that's exactly why they're learning it. And I don't care because it's getting inside of them. And what's going to happen to them one day by faith is what happened to me. As I grew up, my parents stuffed me full of Bible. And I didn't memorize the Bible because I love God. I memorized the Bible because I wanted to stand in front of the church and have people say I was number one. Honestly, I learned it for sinful reasons. But when I was 16 years old and the Holy Spirit suddenly breathed through my life, it was like all these little piles of dynamite that had been stored up in my heart suddenly came alive and exploded in the space of about 10 minutes. Because they'd all been planted in there, and when the Spirit of God breathed, all these pictures took on three-dimensional things, and it all suddenly made sense. And God can't do that if it's not deep in your child's heart, and he can't do it if it's not deep in your heart. you got to start memorizing Scripture. Uh, Let her see. Pray the Scriptures back to God. Pray them back to God. That's what makes your prayers really take on the life of heaven is when you're actually praying Scripture back to God. Here's how I do this. After I read the Bible 10 minutes... Um, the first thing that I do to start my prayer time is, is I've circled things in the Bible that I've been reading. I go back and I pray those things back to God. As I pray through my list of people that I, I love, which includes you, I have verses written out beside it that I'm praying for the people that I love because I'm praying God's words back to him. If you listen to me pray, what I want you to hear is I want you to hear me praying the words of God back to him because that's how I know the will of God for somebody's life. And as I'm fellowshipping with God through his word, he is giving me the things that God taught me to ask. So pray the scriptures back to him. Letter D, get in a small group. Get in a small group. Small groups are here at our church, the forum for you speaking the word of God to each other. You see, I'm only one voice at the church, but God didn't create us as like a microphone in an audience. He created the church as a body. And when when God wants to do work in your life, he does it through the means of the body, which means if you're disconnected from the body, you're disconnected from the power of God. The the analogy I use, and I use it all the time, but just, you know, it's important. Um, The church is a body. When um, when, When part of my body has a need, the way that my brain takes care of that need is by means of another body, part of the body. Not another body, but another part of my body. For example, I, here's the one I always use. If, my, you know, if my, the knee on my left leg is itching, it, the, the, the knee sends up a little message to the brain and says, help, I itch. So what does the brain do? Does the brain send down like magical brain juice, you know, microwave power and you know, to dissolve the itch? No, the brain sends a message to brother fingers on his right hand on my right hand, it's like, hey, your brother knee has got a problem, so why don't you go down there and take care of that for him? So he goes down there and he scratches the itch and then he's happy, the hand's happy, everybody's happy. That, that, that's how the body works. How does the body of Christ work? How does God work in your life and in your family? He does it by means of other members of his body, which means if you're disconnected from other members of his body, you're disconnected from the power of God. So don't complain to me when God's not working in your life, when you've separated yourself from the very thing that God intends to work in your life. That'd be like a toaster oven unplugging itself from the wall and then complaining that it doesn't have power. You're like, well, of course you don't have power. You disconnected yourself. 98.4% of what God wants to do in your life, he does so by members of his body. And if all you are in connection to the body is this right here, you're getting about 
what, 1.6% of what God wants to do in you. You got to get connected because that's how God works. That's how he speaks the word of God to you. So get in a small group. We made it really easy for you this weekend. Just sign up. Um, uh, letter E, last one under this section. Um, become an expert at applying scriptures to broken parts of your life. That's why we offer counseling seminars here. The counseling seminars are about the parts of you and the parts of your friends that are most broken. And we want to teach you to be an expert at applying scripture to those broken parts. So become an expert at that. Take advantage of these counseling seminars. So one thing you can do is put yourself in the presence of the word of God. The other two are real quick, okay, so not that long. Number two, here's your second thing. Pray for it. Pray for it. That's what you see Paul doing, right, with the Ephesians. He's not trying to teach them new stuff. He's, he's saying, God, open their eyes to the old things. Help them to feel the weight of your love. Let it press in on them. Some of you are like this. Listen, if right now you would say, listen, this is exactly what some of you would say. If right now you would say, I know that Jesus loves me, but... I know that Jesus loves me, but I just can't forgive what this person has done against me. You know what you've just said? Listen, what you've said is, Jesus's love is lightweight to me, and that person's offense against me is heavyweight. And what needs to happen is not that you learn something new about Jesus. What needs to happen is that Jesus' presence take on a greater weightiness in your heart so that it would outweigh the offense against you. Does that make sense? If you are not married and you are devastated and depressed by not being married, there's nothing wrong with desiring to be married, but the problem is, is that marriage is heavyweight and Jesus is lightweight. And what you need to pray is that God would let your eyes be open to grasp the weightiness of God's love so that while you desire to be married, you're overwhelmed with the glory of what you have in Jesus. If you right now are in the midst of some personal tragedy and it is devastating to you, it's because the tragedy is heavyweight, and Jesus' love is lightweight. Paul, who was no stranger to pain, remember what he said about all of his pain? Remember? And by the way, Paul, his pain was not like, you know, JV. Friends had forsaken him. He was jobless. He was homeless. He'd been, poor, he'd been tortured and persecuted and put in prison. His reputation had been destroyed. He looks at all of it and says, yeah, it's a light and momentary affliction. That's not because it wasn't painful. His pain would compare to probably many of you in here who are in the midst of great pain. And he says it's light and momentary. He's not talking about a cold when he says that. He's talking about deep pain. He says it's light and momentary because of the weightiness of Jesus' love in my life. You need Jesus' love to become so weighty that everything else in your life, the joys and the successes, the disappointments and the failures, they need to become lightweight. Even the deepest personal tragedies and the deepest disappointments become light and momentary because you have grasped the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God for you. It becomes so weighty. So you pray for it because it's not new things you need to learn. It's your heart being open to the beauty and the depth of the old things. Lastly, here's the last thing. Keep obeying even when you don't feel it. Just keep obeying when you don't feel it. Listen, that's my experience. I, I have times where I'd go for long stretches and I'm not feeling much of anything. But then there are times of intimacy. The greatest intimacy comes from a long obedience in the same direction. The greatest intimacy comes from long obedience in the same direction. I was reading an article this week about a 
guy who was talking about the beauty of being married for 50 or 60 years. And he said, there are long stretches in your marriage where the relationship becomes sterile, sometimes becomes cold. He said, but the, the, the moments of intimacy in a couple that has learned to trust each other for 60 years are so much greater and so much sweeter than you'll get from a temporary fling or an affair. It is a long obedience with God in the same direction that is the path through which he releases this intimacy in your life. So when you don't feel it, just keep obeying. Keep putting yourself under the presence of the word and keep praying and yearning for fellowship and intimacy. Is that happening to you? Do you want it to happen to you? It's possible. Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would, at all of our campuses. And you want this? Do you want it? It starts with the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus loved you so much that even when you had rebelled against him and gone the other way, he pursued you. He pursued you to a cross where he took into his body the penalty for your sin and the shame of what you'd done so that he could die for it and then put it away forever so that you could be reconciled to God. Fellowship with God starts with receiving that act of grace on your behalf and you receive it through repentance and belief. Repentance means that you surrender control of your life to God. Belief means you just trust that he did what he said he did and you take it as your own like a gift. Have you ever repented and believed with sincerity? If not, then I'd invite you to do it right now. You can express your repentance to God in a prayer. You can say, God, I surrender to you. You can express your belief in a prayer. Say, God, I receive the gift that you've offered to me. If you've never done that before, I would invite you to do it right at this moment, right now. If you're a believer and you want more of these experiences, why don't you pray right now that God would make everything else in your life light? Everything. Whether it's a good marriage, a bad marriage, whether it's a prosperous career or a failed one. Say, God, make all these things light and make Jesus' presence and his love heavy. Help me grasp the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of love so that I can be filled, Paul says, with all the fullness of God. God, I do not want this church to be a church of just doctrine. I don't want it to be a classroom. God, I don't want this church to be a church of just righteous lifestyles. God, we want it to be a church of experience where people feel and taste and sense the Holy Spirit. That unbelievers walking in would say, God is among these people that you would be in our services and in our small groups and sense your presence. Teach us to yearn for it and give it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.